movies and booze on Moncrief. Brought to you by Lidl's award-winning wine range. Lidl, more for you. Enjoy alcohol sensibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. Fanula Jones, Mick O'Connell and Esther McCarthy join us once again. Good afternoon to you all. Hi guys. There she is, right? Good to know. Uh, When when Esther's Esther's line is clear, that's when, you know, the sphincter muscle loosens out again. (laughs) Not too much, I must say, for for Kieran, who's going to be sitting on this chair in a little while. Uh, So uh, French wines we're talking about today, Mick. We have, we have two very interesting French wines. We have one from the Jura, and the Jura is kind of in the foothill of the Alps, and a really interesting region that has, as we know, it's famous for Comte cheese. It's probably what it's most famous for. But from a wine perspective, really, really interesting. Tends to make really quite fresh wines, and there's a big natural wine movement there. So it mm-hmm. is a, it's, it's quite a cool region. And then... Almost more importantly, we have a red wine from the Rhone Valley made by an Irishman. So uh, a new Irish winemaker in Killian Horan, who who is a very young man and and does this in um, the Southern Rhone. So two two pretty quirky wines. How young is very young? 29? Too young, too yeah, young too to have young. life experience. Yeah. Too, he's even shaving yet, and he's making wine. <laughs> Mother of God! Right? Okay. Well, they sound nice. And uh, I don't know why, Esther. I I thought King Richard came out ages ago, or did it try to come out and then didn't? It was probably one of the many ones that got moved. Yeah, um, it's in cinemas from today, so it's just out today. And you know me, I'm obsessed with tennis, Sean. I could tell you things about racket angles that would make you fall right asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was mad up for this. I was really keen on it. But I had two little narrative um, p- potential problems that had to get past for me. First of all, where does a well-meaning father who wants better for his kids become an obsessed tennis dad? Because the line's very thin and that's not a sympathetic character, you know. Mm. And the other element for me is... Like, you know, I always try and review the film in front of me rather than the film it isn't. But I was going, why his story? Why are we like these two women, Venus and Serena Williams, won 30 Grand Slams between them. So why are we getting told the story through his angle? You know, so I was a little bit concerned about that. But I have Mm. to say, I absolutely loved it. Right. They, They produced this film, though, did they? There were exec producers on it. Um, now, they, they, you know, it does, you could argue it softens some elements of the story and we'll definitely talk about that. But they only got on board after they saw the film. Being Venus and Serena, they said, mm-hmm, let's see the film first and whether it's any good before we la- lend our names to it. So uh, they they have endorsed it, though. It's worth knowing that, I think. Right, OK. Uh, but like they, if they're executive producers, they put money into it. I assume. Uh, well, not necessarily. Uh, the executive producer is the person who brings in money. I suppose having them involved would get financiers on board, potentially. Mm. Um, less so for a biopic, I think. Sometimes it can be a little bit of a red flag, you know, if it's, if it's a biopic endorsed by the subjects. Um, but generally, an exec producer would be a kind of a very high profile, well-known actor who maybe gives themselves that title so that people go, oh, OK, she's uh, attached to that now, definitely. So we can invest money. Uh, more securely because she's a famous star or whatever. Right, okay. I give, I, they're notions. Like, they're attractors I mean, as it is. And they're, they're, okay. not out, they're not out in the trailer now, like, doing all the paperwork that yeah. the producers do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, and uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, Tick, Boom is, first of all, my favourite title of anything this year. Did you see uh, the link between the two films? What do you mean? Well, then I won't, point, there... I won't point it out to you. Will Smith is the link between the two films. 
Is it? Will Smith's song has a line in it, Tick, Tick, Boom. Oh, I didn't realise uh, yeah. that. Well, I know he had more than one song, but you know the song I mean, the name of which I can't yeah. remember. That's the only line of it. And he must, be, yeah. he must be referencing um, Jonathan Larson then, because Jonathan Larson, before he wrote Rent and became a major star on, on the back of that, unfortunately, he died, would you believe, of an aneurysm the first, just the night before the first show debuted on Broadway, one of the biggest musicals of all time. But before that, he was doing a monologue um, show called Tick, Tick, Boom. So I wonder, is Will Smith the, the referencing that here? It must be. Um, and it's his, it's the story of Larson. It's um, Lin-Manuel Suddenly Everywhere, Miranda's mm. uh, directorial debut feature. Um, obviously, he's a highly experienced um, musical theatre director, but this is his first time making a movie. Um, and he, this is a very personal project for him because he first saw Rent when he was 17 in New York and mind was blown, always liked musicals, but seeing the story and how contemporary it was and how timely it was at the time, I think it was one of the first stories to tell that whole um, HIV AIDS crisis uh, as it was unfolding before people's eyes around that time, you know. Um, And he was just so moved that he went off and wrote uh, his first musical called In the Heights. Uh, and, and, you know, it's totally inspired by um, Larson. So no pre- no pressure on Lin- Manuel Miranda to get this one right. Right. OK, it's Boom Shake the Room. That was the that was the Will Smith song. Ah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Ah, that laugh of recognition. <laughs> there you go. That was a quick glass of it there. Thank you very much. Uh, right, anyway, we'll be talking about uh, the two of them uh, later on and we'll be uh, seeing Esther's dance uh, uh, to uh, shake the room. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you've just ignored Star Trek this week, Vanilla. Have I ignored Star Trek? <laughs> yeah. Star Trek Discovery was supposed to debut on Netflix today. Okay. But Paramount Plus pulled the deal two days ago. Uh, What's the story so, there? Drama or no? It's because Paramount Plus said we want to launch our own streaming service in Europe. So in your face, Netflix. So all these Trekkies are going insane. I love totally that. insane. I it's all the drama, Mick. I just love it. Let all the streamers fight with each other. I yeah. love it. Are, is there any sign of us getting Paramount Plus over here? Because they're getting a lot of stuff now. It's apparently it's going to arrive in early next year. Whatever that. What means. else is going to be there? The Frasier reboot. The there's a lot of Drag Race going over there. Could be could be decent. Can anyone afford the extra eight ninety nine? This is I barely can, and I don't have how some ma- of them. How so. many? How many do you pay? Have I you have. I have Disney, I have Netflix, I have Now and Heyu. So that's four. And then I got Amazon for a spell and then stopped. Yeah. What's Heyu? Heyu is where all the trash lives. It's all the housewives and... Right, reality okay. TV. But should they do that and just have like different sort of groups of programs and then you can just pay for those kind of programs if you want them rather than, you know, you pay yeah. for one and it has two good shows and then the rest of it's garbage. But that's, I'd pay a decent chunk for where one where everything was there but sure then we wouldn't have all these scraps I suppose. So. Yeah. I'm fairly See, sure I just paid to flick through them trying to find something yes, good. Yes, exactly. For it's a, that experience. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Sky has, Sky just like started saying, oh, we have Peacock. I'm like, there's nothing on it um, that, apparently that Saved by the Bell reboot oh well, okay I've heard from one person that I trust has said the Saved by the Bell reboot which you can get on Peacock is apparently okay but the other reviews I've read have not been favourable so okay. and oh, you can okay. watch Paris Hilton's new reality TV show wow. well so there much. we go so oh much. no you've changed my mind <laughs> 
Uh, right, so another thing we possibly don't need, uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard documentary. It was sad the first time around. We don't need this. Yeah, a uh, two-episode documentary, uh, I think coming, uh, li- I think maybe later this year or next year. I'm not sure. It just says this autumn, so I would assume it's soon um, coming Discovery Plus it's Johnny versus Amber and it's talking about kind of their relationship and how it's spiralled into this massive celebrity court case that as you said we all know it's pretty grim um, she filed for divorce in 2016 um, and it's split in two episodes so that kind of it's it's her perspective in one episode and it's his in another mm. obviously he maintains that she's like a pathological liar she says she married this guy who's insanely into drugs and that's kind of what was their downfall of their relationship obviously went to the UK High Court I do not want to watch this. I don't know who would want to watch this. I don't know why they want to do it. I understand. I I think from their perspective, obviously, because they're such a high profile couple and it sprung up these kind of like hashtags and it really was divisive in terms of like, in inverse commas, whose side you were on. You know, you'd like, I stand with Amber Heard or like Justice for Johnny Depp, everything. Because he was obviously being pulled from movies and stuff. He was Mm. pulled from the Harry Potter spinoff, that Fantastic Beasts thing. Um, but I just, I even if they do it like as objectively or as nicely, again in inverted commas, as you could, I just, I don't know who's sitting down on a Friday night and is like, you know what I want to watch? This. And if this is coming from someone who is obsessed with celebrities, obsessed with the culture around them. Um, it's just sad. It's just, I don't know why and yeah, this I, and why this case. I think we probably already know enough that they were, they're both bonkers and, you know, yeah, they there's no terrible for each other. There's no and, winner or loser in this and yeah. I don't think you'll sit down and watch it and come away from it being like, oh yes, like it's it's crystal clear, like it never will be. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sad. It's anyway. on Discovery Plus anyway, so nobody yeah. nobody has that yeah, streaming so, service. So, so nobody Don't watch it on Discovery Plus. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, secondly, uh, never has the word teaser been more appropriate for a movie about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. Oh, I'm so, 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 so excited for this. It's actually an eight-part series. So it's Pam, what? Yeah, it's oh Pam and Tommy. God. It's coming to Hulu, <laughs> which I would imagine we'll get on because Hulu over here is star on Disney Plus for us. But it basically tells the story of when Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's sex tape was stolen and released to the public. If anyone has not seen the photos, I doubt they haven't, or watched the teaser, go watch it immediately after listening to this, obviously, because the makeup department deserve every single award. It's Lily James as Pamela Anderson uh, and Sebastian Stan as Tommy Lee, and they are just, it's on, it's frightening, especially her. She has her, like, down to a T, everything. She's in, like, the Baywatch swimsuit and everything. It's crazy. It's so but good. Is it that hard to make someone look like Pamela Anderson? Boobs, blonde hair, teeth, covering your man in tattoos. Boom. It's. I think it's hard to do it well. I think they. I think it could like potentially cross a line of kind of drag esque, like not really. But she she embodies it. I think fully. Now we'll wait and see when we watch it because it could not could very well not be any good. But anyway, Seth Rogen is in it as well. He plays the guy who distributed the recording. Uh, yeah, he seems to have lost a bit of weight. Yeah, he's on the production team. And then we have uh, Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec as well is in it as well. And, so. and But it just, is it just about the whole, the, the, the porn tape thing? It's kind Yeah, it's yeah. about like, in the wake of that, like there's a, you'll see in the teaser, like Tommy Lee's like trying to, because they obviously, they weren't together that long, whatever, he's trying to calm like Pamela down and be like, it's grand, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And then it kind of, you see this clip of them watching it in the library or something and being like, oh my God, what the hell is happened um, so yeah I don't know could be interesting I'm intrigued I will be watching yeah, it it's uh, February 2nd in the US we don't have an official date here but I would imagine it would be around yeah. at the same time uh, somebody says if I remember correctly the sex tape was an 8 part miniseries as well so that, uh, it probably suits that I That's couldn't possibly worth... comment I know nothing about that uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Must be. Yeah, well, it was the early days of the internet. I think it was probably was more difficult to find. Waiting for the modem to just work yeah. like you watch every bit. Uh, a couple of texts uh, on that. Uh, Cormac says, so I've, if I text the show at the cost of 30 cent, hence part funding, am I now an executive producer of Moncrief? <laughs> Can you please update the end credits accordingly, says Cormac. Indeed, we will do that. And uh, Neil says, no loss on the Star Trek front. As far as I'm concerned, nothing in the Alex Kurtzman era is canon. As far as I'm concerned, it's all rubbish. DS9. P.S. My mum thinks I'm cool. That's the most important thing, Neil. Uh, what wine should we drink first? We should do the Cote de Jura. So this is a, a white wine. It's a Chardonnay. And it's from a producer called Domaine de Marne Blanche. Um, so Jura, like I said earlier, is a really, really interesting wine region. It's in the foothill of the Alps and is one of the homes now of the kind of natural wine movement. You have really mm-hmm. exciting producers like Tissot and Jean-Francois Ganavat, who has his own kind of wine world scandal over the last couple of weeks in that he just sold very, very much at the like godfather of natural wine scene, has just sold to a, a Russian billionaire, which is quite a quite a thing in the agricultural mm. world. You can just hear all those jaws dropping and hitting That's the floor, selling can't you? Time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Bajura is very much one of the homes of natural wine and, and there's a reason for that. And the reason for it is that the wines themselves can maintain this really refreshing acidity. So when you have natural acidity it balances out all the potential baddies that can happen in a wine so in wine you can have kind of um, bad bacteria that can make a a wine spoil and turn it into vinegar basically and uh, if you have natural acid it prevents that from happening Mm. so it's a it's a really good place from a practical perspective to to be one of the kind of foregrounds in, in natural wine and Style-wise, these are super, super complex wines, but they always have this kind of generosity of fruit and then that really bright, refreshing acid. And then they are very, very umami wines as well. Mm. So quite often they get that from... their In, in the Jura, they have a, a technique where they use floor, which is a... a this is really boring, a film-forming yeast that goes over the top of the barrels. And it's also found in sherry, but it gives this kind of saltiness to the wines. So you get this wine geek talk of minerality Mm -hmm. plus this fruitiness plus this acid plus umami and all of a sudden you've got the the kind of perfect picture for food wine what have you guys tasted what what do you think yeah i wasn't incredibly keen on the first sip but it did grow on me it is that like umami i think is the perfect word and and i think that saltiness as well it, it means that the first sip you're kind of going oh and, and there's a raised eyebrow, but mm. then all of a sudden your mouth is left totally refreshed and you're yeah. going, I need more. Yeah. yeah. And then I need some more and then I need some more and then the <laughs> bottle's gone and then all of a sudden you're a natural wine fan and you're moving to the Jura and you don't wear socks. Yeah, right. <laughs> all of a sudden you go, what was the name of that again? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, what's in the cupboard anyway? <laughs> uh, aren't there a good few other high-end wines uh, being produced by Irish people in France? I'm sure I've had a couple of really good ones recently, says the text. So there are. There, there, there are. There, like, I mean, it's, it's all the rage. So we have... I suppose probably the most high profile is Roisin Curley, who is based in Mayo. and um, Or, sorry, she's not based in Mayo, she's yeah. from Mayo. Yeah. Based in Burgundy, and she makes really interesting wines from there. Then you have people called Le Ducal, who are based in the Southern Rhone, which is yeah. actually where Killian makes this particular wine. So you have all sorts and sizes of Irish winemakers, even... even 
no hopers like me make a wine. This so, is true. Um, this is true. That was that was the only reason I asked the question. Nick. It was just to you know give you that segue uh, in there. Right, uh, uh, Esther, what uh, movie do you want to do first? Oh, the tennis one for okay. sure, King All Richard. Right. I got these two great tennis players. All we need is a club. Everything to go from prodigy to pro. Raise your hand, Serena. Venus Williams. What you think? Nobody's taking that bet. Tennis takes expert instruction. It takes families with unlimited financial resources. It's like asking somebody to believe that you got the next two Mozarts in your house. There you go. Uh, that's King Richard there. Uh, and uh, d- despite what that uh, trailer gives you the impression, we all know what happens in the end. So, uh, Esther, are you just hopelessly biased about this because you love tennis? Oh, completely. Okay. But also, you know. like, I'd skin in the game as well in that if they got stuff wrong, like I was watching the angles of their arms now going, is she hitting the ball the way Serena hits it and stuff? Like, I could, I, honestly, I could bore you to tears with this. I should just cancel the programme for the rest of the day okay. and I'll just talk about <laughs> tennis. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, if it, if it went right, I was going to be in love and I was in love and the reviews have been very good across the board for this though. Um, I don't know how much you know about Richard Williams, Sean, but like he's a real character, um, with fame, you know, raised the kids in Compton and maybe my favorite story about him is that, um, when I was researching this, I found that he was so tough on the girls. You'd have them out day and night. Um, Venus and Serena hitting balls in all weather and he was so tough that some of the Compton gang members used to come over to them to him and say will you take it a bit easy on them so that's how like much mm-hmm. they toiled and worked for um for what they achieved and he was you know he, so I was kind of like oh is this going to be a story about obsession and and how's that going to pan out but actually you learn that he was very devoted to the girls welfare as well in fact Around the time they started to really make a good, a strong impression in the tennis scene when they were about 11, 12, uh, the whole Jennifer Capriati story was going down and she had burnt out. A brilliant young player had burnt out and started experimenting with drugs in, in her teens and had, you know, a really bad downfall um, once she got started playing professional tennis. And he actually gets wind of this and uh, decides to pull them out of um, the junior leagues, which is the traditional way you advance up to senior tennis playing and turning professional. So he decided to just pull it and have him have the girls um, to the ire like of the money men, of the agents and the the guys who were invested, you know, who wanted them to see, see them play juniors to get the fan base up and decided to have them just practice in Florida in their base where they moved to um, when the girls talent became apparent. So that is an interesting thing and I think it makes him a much more sympathetic character. Also, you get the sense that this is a family ambition that uh, both him and his wife, who's brilliantly played by Angelou Ellis, uh, who's really good in supporting scenes. Like she lets him think he's wearing the trousers, but you find out in a couple of family scenes who really is the boss there. Um, and, she, you know, they have ambitions for the girls. It's not as straightforward. I think it's always been the rags to riches story, the Williams. Like, they weren't that badly off, you mm. know. Um, but they wanted a better life for themselves. And, and he picked, he, now, whether you believe him or not, but like, it's the well-told story that he had a 78 
page blueprint for the two girls to become tennis stars before they were even born. This is the story he likes to tell. Yeah. Um, and he decided to opt for tennis after seeing a young Romanian player. So it's, it would even 20 years ago it would have been one of the few sports professional tennis where the women were re- not a, on an equal level with men. They are now, but at the time they wouldn't have been. But you can you could get very rich very quickly. Um, that's what he wanted for his girls. He wanted them to get out of uh out of the trap they're in and, and, and the long hours as, as a security man that he worked as. So you go on this journey with them and it's, you know, it's just a certain period in their lives, really, um, from where kind of early adolescence right up to when Venus plays. Who, so Venus was the first one to break through as a major star um, when she plays her first professional game. At, um, against, she would have been number one at the time, Rancho Sanchez Vicario, and she was only 14. So it's like, it's the fight scene in Rocky is the kind of big climactic scene in this where she comes out onto the world stage and the hype has been building. Um, people are fighting for sponsorship deals. Her dad is telling her to hold out. There, There's some really funny scenes in this film where they just, as a family, cut through the nonsense of agents and people trying to sell things at them. Uh, it's very amusing in places and it's also very amusing in um, uh, Richard Williams' absolute determination not to take no for an answer. He would just arrive down at these fancy clubs, you know, the only black family in, 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 the, in the club. And, you know, he would tell the kids they're, on, they're only just staring at us because they've never seen anyone so handsome. And he would uh, saunter up to John McEnroe's coach and say, sure, you're, you've a bit of downtime there. Do you want to watch these girls hit? And absolute persistence paid off. As the coach says to him at one stage, you know, you're, you're the most stubborn man I've ever met. And I coached John McEnroe. Uh, so there's all of that going on. And um, there's just a loveliness to it, though, as well. There's a real tenderness. They have a common goal, I think. And what worked for me also I was going as I said to you at the start why his story why not theirs Mm. and what happens here is it's a lovely handing over through the course of the film which is two and a half hours long by the way I was in heaven but it might be long for some people Um, over the course of the film the girls kind of take autonomy as they grow older over their own careers and stuff and there's a kind of lovely handover of the baton I suppose in the in the film's final scenes so it really 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 worked well for me um, there's a lot of talk about Will Smith's performance I think it is the kind of it's lovely it's funny he nails those um, those stub- the stubborn lines and the funny lines and uh, the ability to cut through the nonsense as I say so I think he's going to get probably get an, an Oscar nomination for it but for me, the real stars of this are um, Sania Sidney and Demi Singleton, who had to learn how to play tennis for this. Not only had to learn how to play tennis, but learn how to play like the Williams sisters. Um, and they are fantastic in it. Really, really great acting performances as well. Um, so it's kind of universal. It's, a, it's the great sports movie in that it has all of that emotional heft and investment even, and, you know, that trickery of even though you know who's going to win this football shootout or whatever, that you're still on the edge of your seat by the time it comes. It builds beautifully like that. It's written by a guy called Zach Bray- Balin, actually, who's writing 
the new Creed movie that's coming up next year. So that gives you an idea of the territory here in terms of this, you know, it's a sassy sports movie, really. Mm. Um, but it, ma- it manages to avoid the cliches that often saturate um, sports biopics because they're such characters and because it was unprecedented what they did, you know. Uh, and, and the leading performances are just lovely. I absolutely had a great time with this, I have to say. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Paul in Irishland says, I had a 10-point plan to become a professional footballer when I was a kid. Don't know where I went wrong. 34 years later, I've only still completed step one, play football. Uh, still, there's, there's time, Paul. Uh, Adele in Limerick says, I don't think Serena and Venus were ready to have a movie about their lives. They're still playing and maybe feel uh, they've more to give. Their sister was on set every day during the making of the film. I think it's so amazing to have a movie about a black man and his amazing and successful family and how he fought for them to be accepted and to coach. Saw him at Wimbledon with his second wife. He's tall. That was like a documentary, Adele. Thanks for all that information. I actually sat, I actually sat behind her ma in Wimbledon once. There's my famous story now. Yeah, I got I snuck into a, a press seat on an outside court and uh, just looked up and I thought, oh, my God, that's Mrs. Williams right in front of me. Right. And it was really interesting because every time Venus would miss a big point, she'd turn around and stare at her mother. And I was right behind her. So I got the intensity of that gaze and mother God, it would frighten life out of you. I wouldn't uh, like to face it down the court. Uh, Adele, though, saw him with a second wife. Is there uh, did something happen to the first Mrs. Williams? No, she's Brandy is is the second wife, and actually, oh, there's right. some hard truths here. Um, there was, there was lots of kids, um, uh, uh, and lots of relationships, and uh, it is actually, it is uh, pointed out at them though by Brandy, the second wife, about um, kids turning up at the door of the house, and she, she doesn't know where, they, where they've come from and oh, stuff. God. He had another relationship before her, um, and I think that ended quite badly, and. Some people aren't too happy that this film is painting him as sympathetically as it is, I have to say. Ah, right. Uh, usual text slagging off uh, Will Smith, but you're, you know, what can you do uh, about that? Oh, I think that... he's great in this. Well, yeah, exactly. And uh, a lot of people, well, some people at least seem to think he just doesn't, uh, uh, he isn't able to act. The main point though, Esther, uh, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a sting made up for this part of the show where people tell Esther how wrong she was about Doom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh God, I thought you were going to say tennis. I was going no, to no, just no, no, no. Uh, uh, Linda says, have to disagree with Esther on June. I thought it was incredible. Maybe the best sci-fi movie ever. Uh, oh gosh, Linda, you have to see all of them for that. Though Mick does agree with you. Watched Dune last week. No idea what all the fuss is about. It's basically just Star Wars for adults. Well, people would say Star Wars was actually for adults. Uh, I'd seen it all before. Snore uh, says, make the hashtag, by the way, this is based on the piece. Simon did during the week about slippers. It is nightwear movies. Uh, the leggings of Bagger Vance or the boy in the nice pyjamas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the, the, the red we have in front of us. That the, might... uh, yes, red wine. Hip-hop Tell us about reds. it. Yes, hip-hop, hip-hop reds. reds, I think. Um, so this particular wine is a red from the Rhone Valley in France. And it is made by an Irishman called Killian Horan. Um, Killian has done cellar hand at a estate called Le Ducal, and Le Ducal is owned by a combination of kind of Irish wine trade gurus, including Gerard from 64 Wines and Simon Tyrrell and Charles, who runs Nomad Wine. So 
Killian's been the seller hand there, which basically is shorthand for he does all the hard work while okay. the lads drink wine. Is that what a seller hand is? is se- like, seller hand is up. he basically lifts all the barrels and does all the really, really hard okay. work. Right. And, and literally the guys just look at the grapes, drink wine and boss the seller hand around. That, okay. that, that, is, that tends to be how it works. And I think Killian... He's called this wine Le Charlatan, so the Charlatan, Ooh, and, and I is think that a dig at his previous employers. No, I think I think this particular one because he, he's still with the guys. I think the no. Charlatan is that he's he's kind of probably bartered a little bit with the guys to get some of their grapes and has made his own wine in their winery. So he's he's okay. he's done a lot of things really really well here. This is a tiny tiny production there's 480 bottles in total Crikey. and they're they're all here in Ireland but again they they won't last very long and this has definitely been the the big news on kind of wine instagram which again has like four followers but um <laughs> but we we've just been tasting this wine in 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 the break and it is absolutely delicious it is tasting so so good so it's labelled as Syrah and Viognier, and that's the that's the blend that they tend to do in Cote Roti. Um, Cote Roti is where they do a red grape and a white grape blended, and you get this very smooth, very unctuous kind of style of wine with a little bit of peppery spice. Um, but this is tasting absolutely stunning. It's twenty seven euros, so again, it is a weekend wine. Mm. But this is if you're getting your it's steaks very, for the weekend. It's very distinctive. It really yeah. is. It's so dry. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah, it's lovely. Good I love manual. this. How would he... Um, he wouldn't make any money out of this, though, would he, given that it's such a short, it's, it's, a small it's, production? Do you know what? It's a really difficult thing to make any money f- from wine at all. Uh, you kind of have to be born into it a little bit if you want to make money. I, th- I think the people who do this, Roisin, um, the guys at Le Decal, Killian, they all do it because they just love it. And it's a brilliant experience. You know, you basically spend your September every year kind of living the fun country life and then you go back to normality mm. um, it, that's about the right balance as well I would say is hard work for one month of the year yeah. and then go back to your Excel file sweet deal is wine Instagram is that known as Winsta should, uh, should be um, must look that up and find out should if, be is that the case uh, right so uh, Tarantino versus Miramax yeah this is interesting so Miramax are suing Quentin Tarantino because he's planning to sell NFTs from Pulp Fiction. You better explain what an NFT is. Yeah, I love this because I am not a business journalist or a technology journalist. I just like to talk about famous people. But in very simple terms, NFTs are like unique digital objects that confer ownership. And the best example I can give of that is like there's loads of prints of uh, the Mona Lisa everywhere but the Louvre has like the one like the yeah. actual Mona Lisa right yeah. so people and mainly celebrities and like rich people are doing it like Kings Leon sold their last album as an NFT like you're seeing other artists huge hit that yeah. album was wasn't it yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> who can name it not me <laughs> um, but basically what Tarantino is looking to do is he was going to auction off these script pages from scenes that didn't make the final cut of the movie um, along with audio commentary um, but Miramax have come in and said that basically that he's overstepping and uh, they're kind of suing him for breach, breach of contract because they produced the movie. Um, they had written to him basically saying, asking him to give up the projects and saying that they hold all the rights, including the sections that have, didn't make the final cut. But I think Tarantino is kind of ploughing ahead. He's claiming that he owns the rights because they're in the written form. Yada, yada, yada. But like the money that I can imagine if this goes ahead or whatever, or if they work out some kind of deal or if he works out some other way to sell some other thing as an NFT. If you look at like 
there was one that went from an artist called Beeple, who I'm not familiar with, but they sold a digital work that went for $69.3 million. Yeah, until the like artist falls out like. of it and it's, and it's worth 69 cents. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Which will happen sometime next week. It's, it's rich people's game, I don't know, but oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's interesting, yeah. but... Mugs. Uh, <laughs> right, we'll go on to our second film of the day. It is Tick, Tick, Boom. Here's a clip. I have an original rock musical. Hey, boy genius. And I have spent the last eight years of my life writing. He's getting out. You're going to be rich and famous. And rewriting. Did you pack it yet? Oh, I'm getting so close. And rewriting. Can I hear it? Any day now. Eight years. And the time keeps ticking. You need to ask, are you letting yourself be led by fear or by love? Fear. A hundred percent fear. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Uh, Right, so uh, all your man's films are kind of, is there maybe everything looks and feels like a, a Broadway production? Yeah, he's definitely bringing that in here. And I mean, I really loved this in the end. It's quite cluttered in the first hour. It's very busy. There's a lot of jazz hands. Um, I, I absolutely loved it, but I can see people watching it on Netflix over the weekend and texting in to give out to me um, next week about it. I'm sure I suppose it'll make a change from Dune, Sean. Yeah, just say it's not um, as good as Dune and then you're off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of framed as a musical within a musical. So the source material was kind of a monologue that Lar- Larson did about rejection and about turning 30 and having very little career success and it was he was trying to produce this musical called Superbia uh, it's a futuristic sci-fi musical and it sounds magnificent actually um, but it was being turned down en masse by kind of New York theatre bosses causing him this big creative crisis as he approaches his roundy birthday so he's feeling the pressure from everyone his girlfriend she wants to move out of the city she's kind of sick in New York um, his best friend who settled down with a sensible day job and wants him to do the same. And he's, of course, he's bank balance as well, which is in serious decline. So what what Miranda does is kind of takes the story of, you know, unfulfilled creative um, achievement and frames that within a musical of its own. So it's kind of like the first hour I was going, oh, my God, I hope this calms down a little. It's a bit manic and it does calm down and it really finds heart um, and what it does is, I think, part, for two reasons, partly because of Andrew Garfield's performance. Um, he is magnificent in it. I've never seen him do anything like this before. Uh, that smile, of course, is so charismatic and in so many different roles. Um, but I think this is him stretching himself more than we've ever seen him do before, uh, because he is kind of a a tetchy kind of character, a stubborn character, not always sympathetic, can be mean at times. Um, and is kind of obsessed with his own unfulfilled achievement, really. And that's all that drives him at the point of the story that we are introduced to him in the film. Um, but I think then it kind of, you know, you're going, who's this for? But I was thinking about, like, It's a Sin on Channel 4 last year um, and how it was, you know, mm. pretty much a period series, but how much this generation got on board with it and how much people loved it. So I do think there's an audience there for this because... Um, 
what happens is, you know, rent has not yet been written, but it's the old adage, write what you know about, you know, don't write about, um, you know, sci-fi futuristic musicals, maybe start writing about the crisis that's going on in your own life because his friends were dying. It was the early 90s. It was the HIV crisis was hitting the city. People were really scared. And there's one line with his friend and you kind of go, gosh, how far we've come from with that disease where he says, if I'm lucky, I'll have a year, you know. And it's hard to believe that that's what people were facing just, you know, a couple of dozen years ago. And, you know, that's it's, it, it builds beautifully then the story, I think, into how he is influenced by what's going on around him. And he finds heart. And when he finds heart, the, the work feels true. Um, so that's kind of what it is. It's, I suppose, an affectionate love letter from Miranda to um, yeah. L- L- Larson and uh the music's great. It's pulled from everywhere. So some there's some bits from Superbia. There's some bits that Miranda obviously has written himself. And then there's bits from the monologues as well. So that's why it, there's a lot going on at the start, because there's one minute there's people dancing around the library. And the next minute, Andrew Garfield's on the stage doing a monologue. And it's like, what now? And you're trying to, to kind of keep up. But when it finds its tone then, or you allow yourself to succumb to the, the kind of crazy tone of it, I think the the rewards are really there. It's very very sweet, I have to say. Okie dokie. Uh, thanks a million, Esther and Fanula and Mick, of course. Movies and booze on Moncrief. Brought to you by Lidl's award winning wine range. Lidl, more for you. Enjoy alcohol sensibly. Visit drinkaware.ie.